am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and uh, welcome to this week's Character in Context, where we will be discussing no context, and only the character of God, really, because, oh my goodness. If you've been following my Facebook page, you know exactly what I'm going to be talking about, and I'm going to cry sometimes, and I'm too exhausted to regulate my emotions. I just gotta be totally honest with you. But this is the story of our Sukkot miracle that we never wanted to happen. <laughs> what have I told you guys in the past? Everyone wants the great miracle stories to tell. No one wants to live through the circumstances that make the, <laughs> the miracle stories happen, needed, necessary. It'd be nice to live just a normal, I don't know what a normal life is. But a quiet life, it doesn't need divine intervention, but, you know, that hasn't been the way of things for us. And and so we have gotten a lot more than our fair share of miracles. I will be perfectly honest with that. We've had a lot more than our fair share of drama that goes along with them to make it necessary. But, you know, we praise God that, um, you know, some people are called to walk lives of more drama than others, but... I'm grateful that God is there to walk us through it because I couldn't imagine going through any of this without him. But then again, without him, I wouldn't be going through any of this. And if you've listened to our adoption testimony, you know I'm telling the truth, all right? But so this is also the story of how I uh, gratefully and gladly broke not only the Sabbath, but also the high holy day of the first day of Sukkot. And I do it without apologies, and I do it gratefully knowing that I have a father in heaven who set it up so that I was going to have to do this, and that he was going to show me that he understands and that things happen, and only the most legalistic um, religionist who, you know, doesn't really get the character of God and doesn't get the fact that things happen um, is going to take offense to this. And I, and, I, and I share this part of it also because, you know, a lot of times things do happen and people will come down on you like a ton of bricks, but you know what? We're not perfect and we are not living in a society that's set up to even deal with living according to... Um, some of the Torah commandments, um, some of the Torah commandments, no society on earth would, would ever keep now, you know, like the ones dealing with slavery and that stuff and, and warfare. But other ones like, um, like the feasts and stuff, it's, it's, we're not set up optimally for it here in America. Um, keeping a kosher, kosher, kosher diet, it's very difficult here in America and you got to work at it. And sometimes mistakes are made. And uh, you know what? I am so tired that I just rabbit trailed on you guys. But it's all part of the story. And the story happened. The story started 10 days ago when my adult son, oh, that's hard to say, Andrew, he's 19 and a half. He and his twin, 19 and a half. And is, if you've been listening to me a long time, you know that we adopted them in a birth in a very, very traumatic, but, <laughs> but, um, also blessed and, and miraculous series of events um, that have gotten even more miraculous in the last 
four months, but uh, that's a story for another day. Um, it's wonderful when um, when connections can be made and forgiveness happens and restoration happens. But anyway, Andrew started um, having trouble staying awake, and um, he became photosensitive. He, he couldn't stand the light, and his vision was getting blurry. And and the thing is, when you've got a ten-year-old with a um, with a VP shunt in his brain, draining off fluid, it's easy to just haul him down to the ER and have a CT and, and have everything checked out and take him to the neurologist and everything. But when he's 19 and 5 foot 11 and 180 pounds, it's not so easy. And he is a you know he's a grown up and he he gets to make his own decisions and it's like Andrew we need to go to the hospital today Andrew we need to go to the hospital today and finally this started on like Friday or Saturday and he started calling in at, to work and he couldn't go to work and um they actually called him and said you know what you, <laughs> you're just not showing up for work and everything and he just let them fire him um because this drop had just been too hard on his body. And I, I had peace about that, actually, which is odd. Uh, I had to talk my husband into having peace about it, too. But finally, for through Yom Kippur, I just, I, I read the Bible out loud just about all day and prayed and, um, and kept poking at him. It's like, Andrew, I think we need to go to the hospital. I think it's your shunt. Come on, baby. We need to go. And Tuesday morning, he was finally willing to to go to the emergency room. We went to the emergency room. Um, unfortunately, no one there knew anything about shunts. They did a shunt series um, with the x-rays to, to look at the shunt. Um, they did not do a full head CT scan, which I thought they had done. They decided he's having a migraine. Oh, they did a lumbar puncture in his neck, and I have not heard of... Andrew's gone through so many procedures in his life, and I have not heard him complain about anything. The lumbar puncture... Oh, yeah, that grossed him out and got him complaining about all sorts of things. Um, but they, they drained fluid out of, um, out of his um, system. Is, they've drained cerebral spinal fluid out to test it and look for spinal meningitis and infection, everything. There was nothing. He, he was fine on that. And then they gave him a migraine cocktail. We found out he, he reacts very badly to Benadryl. He's one of those rare individuals that it... Sends through the ceiling. Uh, but he started feeling better after they gave him the migraine cocktail. Of course, in retrospect, he felt better because they drained fluid off of his brain. Because the fluid, I'm going to explain how a shunt works. Andrew was born with hydrocephalus. Uh, it means water on the brain in Latin. And it's uh, when you're born with spina bifida, one of the 90% uh, of people who are born with spina bifida develop hydrocephalus, which is there is a blockage somewhere along the spinal column that with all the rest of us, the fluid from our, that our brain is floating in, as more is created, it just naturally drains off and is absorbed into the rest of our body. In people like Andrew, that's cut off. And so what happens is the... The brain, the body doesn't stop making cerebral spinal fluid. It just, it stops being able to, to drain it and absorb it and the pressure builds. It's like, I want you to think about filling a water balloon, but 
you've got a brain inside that water balloon, and the water balloon is a skull, and it's not going to expand like a balloon. And as the fluid builds, the brain crushes slowly from the inside, and it's excruciatingly painful. It's um, a headache that no drugs can touch. Because what do you do? The brain is being crushed from the inside against uh, a bone wall. And it's, it's, a, it's a terrible way to die. And uh, that's why it's kind of like, and I was getting ready to call the ambulance, actually, to take him in before he went in. But, and they said, no, 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 so the headache medicine worked. And so we were like, oh, well, that's kind of relief. Although, you know, why is his vision still cutting out? But we um, went to see the general practitioner the next day. And he said, well, I think Andrew's got a, a viral infection. We called the ophthalmologist, the vision specialist, and he sees Andrew the next morning. He says, you need to drive this boy to the University of Utah right now. We're going to get on the phone. We're going to tell them to expect you. Get down there. You know, there's no time to waste. And so thank you, Dr. Hooten. I will never stop praying for you because um, you probably saved my boy's life. Anyway, so um, it's a four-hour drive down to Salt Lake City. Um, traffic was pretty good. There was a terrible accident that miraculously seemed to clear. I mean, the, I didn't even know how far the traffic was backed up, but literally within like one or two minutes of us being parked on the on the freeway going down, it, it just cleared, and you couldn't even see where the accident had been. So thank you, God. And we got into Salt Lake City. And we got there just after the lunch rush hour, again, because you, you cannot get to that hospital without driving through the heart of um, downtown Salt Lake City. And we got there, and um, I made a terrible mistake, and I'm going to share this terrible mistake because I want everyone to not make the same mistake. If you are taking in a family member for potential emergency surgery... And that is do not feed them. Do not feed them anything. And especially do not feed them an English muffin with a fried chicken patty and egg and cheese on it. Because all of those things take a minimum of eight hours to digest. And at two o'clock, I encouraged Andrew to finish off the breakfast sandwich that I'd gotten him. And I will always regret that. Because it meant... Three hours more of pain that he didn't have to go through. So just, you know, if you're suspecting surgery, and if it's emergency surgery, just don't. Because there is, if they if they go into surgery and there's still food on their stomach, um, what can happen is they can aspirate. And that means um, they throw up into their lungs. All right. And that's worse than anything else. That, that causes permanent lung damage. In a lot of cases, it can kill you. So just remember my words for the rest of your life and, and, you know, yeah, no matter how much they're screaming for food, it doesn't matter. So we got to the ER, and it was very different being in Idaho with their mask regulations uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, Utah's very different than Idaho. Um, they're very serious, and especially when you're going into a hospital. And so we had to go through a screening in a tent to get in, which is fine. I, I don't blame them. 
So we go in, and they get Andrew right back, and I have to say that the University of Utah Hospital, I can't say enough good about it. I mean, I loved Primary Children's. Right there across the street where Andrew had Spina Bifida Clinic when he was a baby. They were wonderful. But um, University of Utah, dealing with an adult and his scared mom during a, during a, crisis, a health crisis, man, they went above and beyond. And I can't say one negative thing about anyone from admissions to the guy, to our neurologists, to the guy who took Andrew's lunch order on the last day. He was actually really awesome. Thank you, Frank. Um, anyway, they got him back. They, they tried to get Andrew's test results from the hospital here, the ER. They were not being cooperative. So they just said, do you mind if we run everything again? I said, please run everything again. And... They showed me the head CT because I know what Andrew's head CT should look like. And I said, oh my gosh, I have never seen so much fluid built up in my boy's brain. And they said, okay, that's what we thought. Let's go and we'll, uh, we'll operate him on him in the morning. But then they sent it to the guy who was going to be doing the surgery. And he says, no, we're doing this tonight. And um, that was when I started getting really worried. And, um, but I saw I was very grateful to be there. And they moved us to NAC, which is the neurological aftercare unit. And everybody there was great and found out that um, they were going to have to, we were going to have to uh, call people in who were, um, who were already in bed. <laughs> or who should be in bed very soon because the neurologist on call he wasn't uh he wasn't the neurosurgeon who who handles shunts and everything as, as wonderful as he was and uh so we need to get dr Gripta in and again someone i'm going to pray for for the rest of my life and they, uh, they got him in, but the anesthesiologist came in and asked the magic question, when was the last time he ate? And I said, um, right before two when we got here. And his face just kind of drained of color a little bit. And he said, oh, because this was at eight o'clock. He says, that's a problem. Because well, at first he said, what did you have him eat? And I told him, and he, he just said, well, that's a problem. Because if it had been something like an apple, we could go right away. Because that digests easy, but... What he ate could be in his stomach another couple hours. We're going to do an ultrasound. We're going to see. And they did. And there was still food in his stomach. And uh, Andrew was in a horrible amount of pain. And and the neurologist, I could hear them debating, you know, outside. It's like, well, do we go and do we risk the aspiration? Or, or do we wait and do we risk? I mean, you know, how much risk is there? I mean, can we? are we dealing with, you know, potentially permanent brain damage if we wait longer you know what's going on and and um ended up being another almost three hours and andrew started vomiting because of the pressure on his brain and oh god i just i, I sat there and and at one point you know i'd been brave up to that point and i just started crying and apologizing and then god i'll never forgive myself and i know it wasn't 
on purpose, but uh, still, when your son's in agony, and he could be out of agony if only you hadn't made a stupid mistake. Very difficult. And, um... So I just, I, I, I sat there and I cried and I prayed and I cried and I prayed and doctors finally came in at 1047 at night and said, okay, let's go. Um, you can walk with him down to where we have to go into the operating room. You can give him a kiss and then, you know, we'll take you, the other doctor will take you to the, um, take you to the waiting room. And I kissed him. Sent him off, and um, and then they let me kiss him again. And I went down to the waiting room, and I knew from past surgeries this could take anywhere from two to six hours. It's the middle of the night. You know, you can't have anyone else there. There's only one other guy in the waiting room, and he's almost done. And and I'm tired. I hadn't really slept in days because I just kept going to check on Andrew. You know, every few hours day or night just to see how he was doing and to see if he was doing worse and because he, he couldn't see and uh, by the time we actually um, got to the ophthalmologist Dr. Hooten, uh, he couldn't lift his eyes and he couldn't look up you put your finger up above his head and, and he couldn't see he couldn't lift his eyes to see it you know, until you until he would lift his chin. And um, at that point, Andrew, you know, finally accepted that he was having a shunt failure. Adults, so-called 19-year-old boys, you know, what are you going to do? And, um, but, oh, I, I, I'll tell you something else before I tell you about the surgery. Andrew had never really understood how very, very blessed he was with his shunt. But as he was looking into the doctor's faces, as they would hear, yeah, he's had this shunt for almost 11 years now, and their eyes would get wide. And they would say, well, how many revisions has he had since birth? Just one. And their eyes would go wide. They're, You're kidding me. This is unheard of. This doesn't happen. And the first shunt, nothing actually went wrong with it. It's just that the tubing was um, faulty and it broke off and the end of the tubing stuck into one of his organs and the fluid was backing up. They only replaced the shunt because they were already in there. And really the shunts that they put in babies are a little bit different, you know, and they generally don't last for nine years. So they put in um, this other one, I think they called it a VP. It's a Delta pump. It's a Delta valve. Um, it was 15 or 50. I got to look at the paperwork. And so Andrew was telling me, Mom, I never, I mean, you always told me how amazing it was that I hadn't had very many shunt failures, but I never really realized how blessed I was until today seeing all those doctors, you know, that I saw the look on their face when you would tell them how old my shunt was. And I said, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, your history with shunts is, is nothing short of miraculous, and it's just, it's been amazing. So, um, anyway, so two to six hours in, and at this point, you know, I've been texting with everyone, um, just, you know, birth families and, um, our family, Mark's family, my family, 
um, friends and just letting them know what's going on. And of course, um, everyone on my Facebook page, you've got hundreds and hundreds of people praying. They've been praying for days. And a lot of them won't even go to bed until I'm able to update, you know. But here it is, it's 1047 at night, and I know I've got at least two hours of wait. And, um, and you know you can lose them. And you don't know how long it's going to take because they don't actually know what's wrong. All they know is that the shunt valve didn't have any fluid in it, which means there's either a blockage in the catheter that um, actually connects from the valve and, and goes through the skull into his right ventricle. So either there's a, there's a blockage from that to the shunt valve and the shunt valve's fine, or the valve is shot. You know, one of those things. But they don't know exactly what everything has to be replaced. It can be a quick two-hour surgery with with minimal problems, or it can be, you know, like as long as six hours, like the when he was six days old. And that was a long six hours, let me tell you. Just don't know fear until your little baby is having, you know, brain surgery. It was bad enough when they closed up his spine the day he was born, but the brain surgery was very scary. But of course, he came through it fine, and I waited, and I was trying to read, and I had my Bible, and I was just trying to distract myself, but I really mostly ended up walking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth looking at the board, and then all of a sudden everything went off the board because it was midnight. And so they were resetting the board for the next day. And so it didn't say his number up there anymore, and it didn't say where he was in surgery. And half an hour later, I see the neurosurgeon, and I gotta admit, when I saw the neurosurgeon, I was a little bit worried because it was too soon. It was really too soon. And he said, um, he said, well, Andrew is awake, and not only is he awake, but he's alert. And, uh, and he explained to me that they had replaced the 19-and-a-half-year-old catheter that goes into his brain because a uh, piece of catheter, it shouldn't be in the body that long, and it was never meant to be in the body that long. When they didn't replace it the first time, it was the it was a good call because it was only nine years old, and um, you don't really want to be inserting things from the outside into the brain because the cerebral spinal fluid's like broth. It's like a great medium for infection, and once there's an infection in there, it's it's very difficult to get out. But it was so old that it really needed to be replaced. Um, so they took that out, and they just happened to have in stock, even though it was an older model, Andrew's exact same shunt valve. They said, you know, we could have put in some more technologically advanced stuff, but we know that this shunt works with his body perfectly. And so, you know, it's as close to a thing as a guarantee we can get for him not to have a shunt failure because most shunts do fail within the first, or is it 40 or 50%, sorry, of shunts fail within the first six months. 
It's hard for me to remember. And the statistics are different than they were 10 years ago when they were 20 years ago when they put the darn thing in. Um, I'm not going to say darn thing because it was a good thing. <laughs> but now they're doing a lot better, but still it's a piece of machinery going into someone's body. And the body doesn't like things that don't belong there, but... Um, it was just, it says, yeah, we could put something more advanced in there, but doggone it, this thing works, and with any luck, his body is going to think we just cleaned it and cleaned the same one, you know, and put the, you know, put it back in. It's, it's literally the twin of the one that was already in there. I will be back, goodness, in just a few minutes. I didn't realize the time was getting so close. So um, I'm back, and uh, it's Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to the second half of Character and Context um, this week for this blessed, blessed, and wonderful week of Sukkot that's been very, very eventful for us. I didn't kind of give you the timeline. Um, Andrew's surgery, or Andrew's surgery was um, started Thursday night at 10.47, and the doctors came out. And so this was already Erev Sukkot. This is the day before Sukkot starts. And it was completed on um, at by uh, 12.30 on Friday. And so this was Erev Shavat, is Erev Sukkot, um, you know, the day before. Well, actually, you know, that is the evening before. You know what I mean. I'm, I'm too tired to be, you know totally accurate right now so this is really this is the it is now the preparation day for the sabbath and it's the preparation day for sukkot and so i was able to uh, call everyone without you know worrying about waking anyone up i mean of course my parents were up you know uh mark's parents um mark was you know had his phone by his bedside and he uh and he'd already, he didn't tell me, but he was taking the next day off work because he just, you know, you, 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 it's hard enough to be there and to witness the pain, but knowing it's going on and not being there to do anything about it is, and to be expected to go to work, ugh. And, of course, his twin and um, just a whole bunch of people, all my aunts, my mom's sisters, you know, they were up and they weren't going to bed. And I was telling them, no, 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 go to bed. This could take six hours. They're like, yeah. Whatever. Um, so 12.30, they all went to bed, and everybody was very, very happy, very relieved, and they, uh, I went back to uh, the the neuro aftercare unit um, where, where I wasn't supposed to be, be but everything had been so crazy that um, the visiting procedures and everything had never been explained, and everything was crazy. And it was 12.30 at night. You're not supposed to have anybody there. And um, just one thing led to another. And let's just say that the hospital staff went above and beyond to make sure that everything would be okay. And that um, after being awake that many hours, I didn't have to drive anywhere. And I'm eternally grateful. I'm not going to say more because I don't want anyone to get in trouble. <laughs> 
But, uh, and I don't know if they would or not, but, you know, they did the decent thing. They did the kind thing. The world of me and meant the world to Andrew. But, um, so at this point, you know, it's, by the time Andrew gets to me, it's it's about one, I guess. And then they move him to ICU because it's a neurological case and they have to do his neurological checks every hour to see if he knows who he is and what day he is. Poor Andrew. <laughs> I gotta tell you something. They asked, do you know what your name is? Do you know where you are? Do you know what day it is? So many times that he is going to hate October 2nd for the rest of his life. <laughs> he doesn't want to say October 2nd ever again. <laughs> and, um, uh, the funny thing was, when they asked him on October 3rd, you know what day it is, he said it was October 2nd. Because <laughs> he had to say it so many times, he just went into pot himself. But, um, anyway, so, so there we were. So... It's Friday, and we're just, you know, there's always a slight chance. with the, And the thing is, with a shunt operation, it's like your life is in danger, your life is in danger, as long as that shunt is needing to be replaced. But then, when it's over, and the fluid is draining normally, and, and the valve is working, you know, with your body, and everything's just kind of humming... You know, it's amazing how, how quickly the body stabilizes. So you go from being in danger of dying and permanent brain damage and or to, you know, I'm okay and I can go home. It's, it's the quickest turnaround that you can possibly imagine. I mean, unless you've been through it and then you know. So we found out early afternoon that there was, well, late late morning that there was a slight chance that Andrew might get released that day. And so we were very excited. And, and one by one, the different hospital people come through and they're testing him. Occupational therapy had to come through. And then the counselor had to come through. And... You know, finally, after everybody else had come through, it was it was neurology, and they gave him everybody gave him the green light, said he was doing awesome. Oh, you know, one of the worst things actually that we went through, and this is crazy. Um, after this kind of procedure, after being under anesthesia, a lot of people they could develop hiccups, and so Andrew has a head full of fluid. It's not all drained to be where it should. So imagine, you know, having kind of like a a headache, but a headache that's not as bad as you've had. Uh, you've had such a terrible headache that it actually seems like you don't. But then you start hiccuping. And you hiccup every 10 to 15 seconds for two and a half hours. And you can imagine with the pressure in your head, you know, um, and, and you've gone, you had no sleep. Because, you know, they're waking you up every hour to check your, your neurological functions. And, of course, the outside of his head hurt. Um, because uh, he won't allow me post pictures of it, but it's pretty impressive. That's a, it's a big surgical area on the outside of his head and stapled, which is also fun. But, um, it's better than stitching, so that's, that's okay. 
We don't want that to come open and have his skull and the insides of his skull um, come in contact with anything from the outside world. You just don't want that. But, um, and he's in terrible pain and, and the hiccups are making his head ache. And it's just, you cannot relax when you have hiccups for two and a half hours. And what he needed to do was he needed to rest, but it was impossible. He actually started getting pretty surly. He had been really good, you know, with it, really stoic. Um, with the exception of the last two or three hours before the surgery, when he was in such agony that he just couldn't even think straight. And when he was vomiting. Um, although I was really proud of him. You know, I, even though he was like that, whenever the nurses or doctors would do anything for him, he would say, thank you. And he would say, please, when he needs something. <laughs> oh, I don't know why I'm laughing. I'm just, I'm so tired still. But I, I, I want to record. Well, it's still fresh in my mind, you know. And I'll forget stuff, but it's okay. So he's hiccuping. And then, and then Frank. Frank, wonderful Frank. Thank you, Frank. Frank, the guy who takes, he's, he's the major D of the hospital. He comes in the room and he chats up the patients and asks them what they want for lunch and for dinner. And he takes them through the menu and he's funny and he has all these funny stories. He's just, he is, he's a godsend. Because 30 seconds after he shows up, I notice that Andrew isn't hiccuping anymore. Andrew has been so distracted by Frank that he's not hiccuping. And, um, <laughs> so that was when he, and I think he stayed in our room for about five or ten minutes just talking to Andrew. And, um, <sighs> but by the time, um, lunch got, No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Andrew couldn't... No, he was he was taking the dinner order because Andrew had already had his lunch order in the morning, and this was Frank doing the dinner order. And when Frank showed up, Andrew hadn't been able to eat anything except like a bite of his hamburger um, because he was just in such pain. And the hiccups, you know. And he couldn't drink his water, and they wouldn't let him out. You know, he drank a certain amount of water, and it was just... And so... Um, when Frank came in, yeah, those hiccups went away, and I guess it was a few hours later um, that the hiccups came back again right before they, they released us from the hospital. And so we're getting out, and, and the happiness of him getting out of the hospital is totally lost because now his hiccups are violent, and they sound way more painful and at this point he's really angry and I'm saying uh, and and I'd done this the first time I said Andrew you know these hiccups are horrible and I can tell how much they're hurting you but I can tell you that being angry about them is making them it's making you hurt more because it's making you hurt emotionally in addition to physically so I took him through some breathing exercises and you know we got to the hotel and, you know, we're checking into a hotel shortly before the beginning of the Sabbath, shortly before the beginning of the first day of Sukkot. 
And there are some people who you would say, you were making people work. It's like, well, they were going to be working anyway. And thank God that they were there working because I had slept two hours the night before, um, maybe, and it was not restful. And Andrew hadn't slept at all. And it wasn't like we had anywhere to go. It wasn't like we were going to drive four hours, and you don't want people driving four hours when they've had two hours of sleep. And people who have seen me drive don't even really want me driving when I've had eight hours of sleep. And we ordered food for, for Andrew. I was able to actually tempt him to eat with blackened salmon. And um, but, but before the dinner arrived, this is the cool thing. Andrew finally snaps out of his funk. Which, you know, he can be. He, um, he wasn't hardly even conscious for this most of this entire thing. And he can't remember a lot of what went on. Just because, um, you know, he was on oxycodone, ex oxycontin um, and different things. And it just all the stress and everything. But when we got back to the hotel room, he started praising God. He started praising God for getting him through the surgery and for the fact that his shunt doesn't fail very often and he hasn't had to go through this like other kids have and he just wasn't realizing how blessed he was and uh, you know how his spina bifida is not you know just crazy like other people's spina bifida and it doesn't have the issues like that our friend little friend Savannah has and she's been having a horrible time since she got her first shunt pl placement um I think in May and so Savannah Smalling, if you think about her in prayer, please pray for her. She uh, She's having a terrible time. But Andrew just didn't realize, and he starts praising God, and his hiccups disappear. And I didn't even tell him. Because I'm going like, you know what? The last time I told him his hiccups were gone, and they came back, he, uh, he, <laughs> he actually had the audacity to blame me for bringing them back by pointing it out, which, you know, no. Uh-uh. They didn't last and the next day he had like hiccups like very very briefly and they went away but he's learning to kind of calm himself down and um and kind of um not exacerbate them so he ate he ate for the first time you know in since that ill-fated meal but he ate blackened salmon and he did not eat his vegetables because they gave him a new shunt not a new brain Ate his vegetables and they were really good vegetables. It was it was grilled zucchini and squash. And uh yeah, it was really good. So but when we got oh I, I left out an important part. When we got to the hotel, we looked like hell warmed over. I kid you not, both of us. And um they couldn't see Andrew's head bandage because he wore a hoodie, you know, and he, he won't go anywhere without that hoodie now. He doesn't want anyone to see the, uh, the, the thing. So he'll only allow me to take pictures of it to chronicle it for uh, the neurologist who we have to have a meeting with in a month over Zoom, So, which is good because driving eight hours for a doctor's appointment is not my idea of a good time, but I will do it if I have to. But when we got there, and I said, um, so um, so when's checkout? And I had explained to her, uh, um, you know, what was going on, that Andrew was just out of the hospital, and uh, we were there for, 
you know, quiet and, and all that stuff. And, and she says 11, and I said, oh, okay. She says, you know what, but you just go ahead and stay until 1. So you can sleep late and just don't worry about it. Just put the do not disturb sign on and we will put, you know, we'll have a thing where you don't have to check out. Because, you know, you obviously need your sleep and you guys have pretty much been through hell. And I almost cried right there. I might have cried, actually. I can't remember. But we went up to the room and, and then Andrew was just so overwhelmed with everyone's kindness and uh, the blessings that we had experienced that he started praising God and his hiccups went away and he ate, and we um, we watched some Guy Fieri because we don't really have TV. We just have um, Amazon Prime and um, stuff. Not Netflix. No, not Netflix. Um, but so we watched some Guy Fieri um, diners, dives, and we always used to like to watch Food Channel. And we missed that, but that's okay. So we watched some Food Channel. And then we uh, went to bed, and we slept for 12 hours straight. You know, nobody even got up to go pee. We were dead. We were dead. Actually, I might have gotten up to go pee, but only once, which was amazing. And we drove home the next day after Andrew ate a ton of food which was so good to see him eating again and having his normal appetite. Because I remember when he was a baby, before he had his first shunt in, he wouldn't take his bottles. Because it hurt so much to suck on the bottles. It hurt. And um, because of the pressure on his brain, and so he, you know, he was losing weight. Wouldn't take any food. And, um... But he was eating, and he wanted to eat a lot, and you would not believe how much he's eaten since then. It, it's shameful. <laughs> <laughs> of course, he'd lost a, quite a bit of weight in the week before, but um, it was just such a blessing, and, and we ran into so many people who blessed us in so many big ways and so many small ways, and I couldn't even begin to remember them, And but you know, sometimes God has to teach us things. There's a lot of us who grew up with fathers who um, either weren't there or who were... Um, Abusing drugs and alcohol, of course. Alcohol is a drug, of course. Um, who uh, didn't love us. Who didn't... Um, some people were molested, you know, by their fathers. There's just so many ways um, that many of us, when we hear the word father, it's not a positive thing the way it's supposed to be. And sometimes God has to train us what fathers are supposed to be and, and how he is. See, his name has been sullied by earthly fathers who didn't do their job and, and who were cruel and who couldn't be pleased and tyrants and, and abusers and oppressors, liars, addicts, adulterers, what, whatever. I hear, I hear terrible stories and, um, and and I needed, I have, he's been training me out of a lot of this stuff for about 14 years now. And it's, and it's slow going, but one of my hang-ups always was, 
And, and I know that things are just as likely to happen to me as anyone else, and that he has no... I mean, it, it, he's not a genie, and he's not my fairy godmother. Um, but sometimes I feel upset that he doesn't protect me, and I get, especially against um, people in the body who, who attack me even when I don't retaliate. And, and I say, you know, why do you let these people do this? And, 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 you know, do you love them more than me? You know, what's going on? And, and he deals with me with, with that kind of stuff. But what he needed to deal with me this time was with how a father responds to a crisis and how a father does not respond to the crisis. First, fathers don't make crises never happen. Crises never happen, okay? That's that's not what fathers do. Everyone has crises in their lives. Okay, that's that's just that's that's our lives. That's 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 the way things are. We don't learn and we don't grow and we don't find out who we really are, and we don't find out who God is until we go through trials and tribulations. But I could look back and I could see, you know. Apart from that mistake that I made with the food, you know, um, I think it was Wednesday night or Thursday morning before the appointment with the ophthalmologist, I said, God, I just, I feel like, and this was true, I feel like you're daring me. You're telling me to, to, to dare you or you're daring me to, to ask you to prove, to show me what a father's love is. So I said, so I may sound impertinent if this was just totally my imagination, but I need you to show me what a father's love is. I need that. And as I got to the end of this, I realized that he didn't make the crisis go away. He didn't, voila, magically made Andrew not need a shunt. And, you know, he's totally healed and, and he doesn't have this problem. The shunt just started working out of nowhere. Okay. But he made he he had that ophthalmologist do all those things and, and, and run all the tests. And that ophthalmologist had a week long waiting list, but he took us the first possible time, eight o'clock in the morning. And he ran a battery of tests on Andrew and, and he did all of the footwork to get us in the door and to not have to do anything. He made sure all the connections were made. And that car accident just cleared up like it had never happened. And and the traffic downtown was not bad because we had just barely missed the lunch rush hour. And and this happened and that happened and and I couldn't even begin to tell you all the tiny little things that he did to remove obstacles. Things that would have weighed down on me had I been forced to deal with even half of them. I probably wouldn't have been able to cope with what was happening. And that's what fathers do. Fathers don't make the crisis go away. Fathers look and they remove the obstacles that aren't going to do any good. He, he, he removed the things that weren't going to teach me anything. They, they removed the things that were going to jeopardize Andrew's life. 
and he, and he was there, and I never felt alone. And he just, and, and he had me not take the charger for my, for my laptop. He had me take the charger for my camera so that when I got there, I couldn't be distracted on the computer. And I had to be with him. And it was quiet. And I was just sitting in a dark room with Andrew and with God. And we were a family there. And he just showed me what a father does. He showed me what the perfect father does when there's a crisis situation. Perfect father's there. Perfect father removes the obstacles that need to be removed. Perfect father just deals with things that there's no point in. Perfect father doesn't take away all of our trials because then he wouldn't be a father. He'd just be an enabler. And we wouldn't develop compassion. And we wouldn't realize how big we he is and how small we are. Oh, man. And he arranged it so that I had to quote-unquote break the Sabbath and I had to quote-unquote break the first day of Sukkot by ordering food and staying in a hotel and ordering more food and, and driving and it was one big long day of work. They worked and, and we worked and it was a situation I wouldn't want to live through again, but I'm really glad to know exactly how much of a father our Father in Heaven is and I will never, never forget all he did for us. See you next week.